The Method of Scientific Investigation by Thomas Henry Huxley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Abai in September 2017. The Method of Scientific Investigation. The method of scientific investigation is nothing but the expression of the necessary mode of working of the human mind. It is simply the mode at which all phenomena are reasoned about, rendered precise and exact. There is no more difference, but there is just the same kind of difference, between the mental operations of a man of science and those of an ordinary person as there is between the operations and methods of a baker or of a butcher weighing out his goods in common scales and the operations of a chemist in performing a difficult and complex analysis by means of his balance and finely graduated weights it is not that the action of the scales in the one case and the balance in the other differ in the principles of their construction or manner of working but the beam of one is set on an infinitely finer axis than the other, and of course turns by the addition of a much smaller weight. You will understand this better, perhaps, if I give you some familiar example. You have all heard it repeated, I dare say, that men of science work by means of induction and deduction, and that by the help of these operations they, in a sort of sense, wring from nature certain other things which are called natural laws and causes and that out of these by some cunning skill of their own they built up hypotheses and theories and it is imagined by many that the operations of the common mind can be by no means compared with these processes and that they have to be acquired by a sort of special apprenticeship to the craft to hear all these large words you would think that the mind of a man of science must be constituted differently from that of his fellow-men but if you will not be frightened by terms you will discover that you are quite wrong and that all these terrible apparatus are being used by yourselves every day and every hour of your lives there is a well-known incident in one of moliere's plays where the author makes the hero express unbounded delight on being told that he had been talking prose during the whole of his life in the same way i trust that you will take comfort and be delighted with yourselves on the discovery that you have been acting on the principles of inductive and deductive philosophy during the same period probably there is not one here who has not in the course of the day had occasion to set in motion a complex train of reasoning of the very same kind though differing of course in degree as that which a scientific man goes through in tracing the causes of natural phenomena a very trivial circumstance will serve to exemplify this suppose you go into a fruiterer's shop wanting an apple you take up one and on biting it you find it is sour you look at it and see that it is hard and green you take up another one and that too is hard green and sour the shopman offers you a third but before biting it you examine it and find that it is hard and green and you immediately say that you will not have it as it must be sour like those that you have already tried 
nothing can be more simple than that you think but if you will take the trouble to analyze and trace out into its logical elements what has been done by the mind you will be greatly surprised in the first place you have performed the operation of induction you found that in two experiences hardness and greenness in apples went together with sourness it was so in the first case and it was confirmed by the second true it is a very small basis but still it is enough to make an induction form you generalize the facts and you expect to find sourness in apples where you get hardness and greenness you found upon that a general law that all hard and green apples are sour and that so far as it goes is a perfect induction well having got your natural law in this way when you are offered another apple which you find is hard and green you say all hard and green apples are sour this apple is hard and green therefore this apple is sour that train of reasoning is what logicians call a syllogism and has all its various parts and terms its major premise its minor premise and its conclusion and by the help of further reasoning which if drawn out would have to be exhibited in two or three other syllogisms you arrive at your final determination i will not have that apple so that you see you have in the first place established a law by induction and upon that you have founded a deduction and reasoned out the special particular case well now suppose having got your conclusion of the law that at some time afterwards you are discussing the qualities of apples with a friend you will say to him it is a very curious thing but i find that all hard and green apples are sour your friend says to you but how do you know that you at once reply oh because i have tried them over and over again and have always found them to be so well if we were talking science instead of common sense we should call that an experimental verification and if still opposed you go further and say i have heard from the people in somersetshire and devonshire where a large number of apples are grown that they have observed the same thing it is also found to be the case in normandy and in north america in short i find it to be the universal experience of mankind wherever attention has been directed to the subject whereupon your friend unless he is a very unreasonable man agrees with you and is convinced that you are quite right in the conclusion you have drawn he believes although perhaps he does not know he believes it that the more extensive verifications are that the more frequently experiments have been made and results of the same kind arrived at that the more varied the conditions under which the same results are obtained the more certain is the ultimate conclusion and he disputes the question no further he sees that the experiment has been tried under all sorts of conditions as to time place and people with the same result and he says with you therefore that the law you have laid down must be a good one and he must believe it in science we do the same thing the philosopher exercises precisely the same faculties though in a much more delicate manner in scientific inquiry it becomes a matter of duty to expose a supposed law to every possible kind of verification and to take care moreover 
that this is done intentionally and not left to a mere accident as in the case of the apples and in science as in common life our confidence in a law is in exact proportion to the absence of variation in the result of our experimental verifications for instance if you let go your grasp of an article you may have in your hand it will immediately fall to the ground that is a very common verification of one of the best established laws of nature that of gravitation the method by which men of science establish the existence of that law is exactly the same as that by which we have established the trivial proposition about the sourness of hard and green apples but we believe it in such an extensive thorough and unhesitating manner because the universal experience of mankind verifies it and we can verify it ourselves at any time and that is the strongest possible foundation on which any natural law can rest so much then by way of proof that the method of establishing laws in science is exactly the same as that pursued in common life let us now turn to another matter though really it is but another phase of the same question and that is the method by which from the relations of certain phenomena we prove that some stand in the position of causes towards the others i want to put the case clearly before you and i will therefore show you what i mean by another familiar example i will suppose that one of you on coming down in the morning to the parlour of your house finds that a teapot and some spoons which had been left in the room on the previous evening are gone the window is open and you observe the mark of a dirty hand on the window frame and perhaps in addition to that you notice the impress of a hobnailed shoe on the gravel outside all these phenomena have struck your attention instantly and before two seconds have passed you say oh somebody has broken open the window entered the room and run off with the spoons and the teapot that speech is out of your mouth in a moment and you will probably add i know there has i'm quite sure of it you mean to say exactly what you know but in reality you are giving expression to what is in all essential particulars a hypothesis you do not know it at all it is nothing but a hypothesis rapidly framed in your own mind and it is a hypothesis founded on a long train of inductions and deductions what are those inductions and deductions and how have you got at this hypothesis you have observed in the first place that the window is open but by a train of reasoning involving many inductions and deductions you have probably arrived long before at the general law and a very good one it is that windows do not open of themselves and you therefore conclude that something has opened the window a second general law that you have arrived at in the same way is that teapots and spoons do not go out of a window spontaneously and you are satisfied that as they are not now where you left them they have been removed in the third place you look at the marks on the window-sill and the shoe-marks outside and you say that in all previous experience the former kind of mark has never been produced by anything else but the hand of a human being and the same experience shows that no other animal but man at present wears shoes with hobnails in them such as would produce the marks in the gravel 
I do not know, even if we could discover any of those missing links that are talked about, that they would help us to any other conclusion. At any rate, the law which states our present experience is strong enough for my present purpose. You next reach the conclusion that, as these kind of marks have not been left by any other animal than man, or are liable to be formed in any other way than a man's hand and shoe, the marks in question have been formed by a man in that way. You have, further, a general law, founded on observation and experience, and that too is, I am sorry to say, a very universal and unimpeachable one, that some men are thieves, and you assume at once from all these premises, and that is what constitutes your hypothesis, that the man who made the marks outside and on the window-sill, opened the window, got into the room, and stole your teapot and spoons. You have now arrived at a vera causa. You have assumed a cause, which, it is plain, is competent to produce all the phenomena you have observed. You can explain all these phenomena only by the hypothesis of a thief. But that is a hypothetical conclusion, of the justice of which you have no absolute proof at all, it is only rendered highly probable by a series of inductive and deductive reasonings. I suppose your first action, assuming that you are a man of ordinary common sense, and that you have established this hypothesis to your own satisfaction, will very likely be to go off for the police, and set them on the track of the burglar, with the view to the recovery of your property. But just as you are starting with this object, some person comes in, and on learning what you are about says, My good friend, you are going on a great deal too fast. How do you know that the man who really made the marks took the spoons? It might have been a monkey that took them, and the man may have merely looked in afterwards. You would probably reply, well, that is all very well, but you see it is contrary to all experience of the way teapots and spoons are abstracted, so that, at any rate, your hypothesis is less probable than mine. While you are talking the thing over in this way, another friend arrives, one of the good kind of people that I was talking of a little while ago. And he might say, Oh, my dear sir, you are certainly going on a great deal too fast. You are most presumptuous. You admit that all these occurrences took place when you were fast asleep, at a time when you could not possibly have known anything about what was taking place. How do you know that the laws of nature are not suspended during the night? It may be that there has been some kind of supernatural interference in this case. In point of fact, he declares that your hypothesis is one of which you cannot at all demonstrate the truth and that you are by no means sure that the laws of nature are the same when you are asleep as when you are awake. Well, now, you cannot at the moment answer that kind of reasoning. You feel that your worthy friend has you somewhat at a disadvantage. You will feel perfectly convinced in your own mind, however, that you are quite right, and you say to him, My good friend, I can only be guided by the natural probabilities of the case, and if you will be kind enough to stand aside and permit me to pass, I will go and fetch the police. Well, we will suppose that your journey is successful, and that by good luck you meet with a policeman, 
that eventually the burglar is found with your property on his person and the marks correspond to his hand and to his boots probably any jury would consider those facts a very good experimental verification of your hypothesis touching the cause of the abnormal phenomena observed in your parlour and would act accordingly now in this suppositious case i have taken phenomena of a very common kind in order that you might see what are the different steps in an ordinary process of reasoning if you will only take the trouble to analyze it carefully all the operations i have described you will see are involved in the mind of any man of sense in leading him to a conclusion as to the course he should take in order to make good a robbery and punish the offender i say that you are led in that case to your conclusion by exactly the same train of reasoning as that which a man of science pursues when he is endeavouring to discover the origin and laws of the most occult phenomena the process is and always must be the same and precisely the same mode of reasoning was employed by newton and laplace in their endeavours to discover and define the causes of the movements of the heavenly bodies as you with your own common sense would employ to detect a burglar the only difference is that the nature of the inquiry being more abstruse every step has to be most carefully watched so that there may not be a single crack or flaw in your hypothesis a flaw or crack in many of the hypotheses of daily life may be of little or no moment as affecting the general correctness of the conclusions at which we may arrive but in a scientific inquiry a fallacy great or small is always of importance and is sure to be in the long run constantly productive of mischievous if not fatal results do not allow yourselves to be misled by the common notion that an hypothesis is untrustworthy simply because it is a hypothesis it is often urged in respect to some scientific conclusion that after all it is only a hypothesis but what more have we to guide us in nine-tenths of the most important affairs of daily life than hypotheses and often very ill-based ones so that in science where the evidence of a hypothesis is subjected to the most rigid examination we may rightly pursue the same course you may have hypotheses and hypotheses a man may say if he likes that the moon is made of green cheese that is a hypothesis but another man who has devoted a great deal of time and attention to the subject and availed himself of the most powerful telescopes and the results of the observations of others declares that in his opinion it is probably composed of materials very similar to those of which our own earth is made up and that is also only a hypothesis but i need not tell you that there is an enormous difference in the value of the two hypotheses that one which is based on sound scientific knowledge is sure to have a corresponding value and that which is a mere hasty random guess is likely to have but little value every great step in our progress in discovering causes has been made in exactly the same way as that which i have detailed to you a person observing the occurrence of certain facts and phenomena asks naturally enough what process what kind of operation known to occur in nature 
applied to the particular case, will unravel and explain the mystery. Hence you have the scientific hypothesis, and its value will be proportionate to the care and completeness with which its basis has been tested and verified. It is in these matters as in the commonest affairs of practical life. The guess of the fool will be folly, while the guess of the wise man will contain wisdom. In all cases, you see, that the value of the result depends on the patience and faithfulness with which the investigator applies to his hypothesis every possible kind of verification. End of The Method of Scientific Investigation by Thomas Henry Huxley